You're listening to Soul School with Laura Coe and Kevin Kaiser. On this show, we dive into life's biggest questions. Who are we? What are we here to do? And how can we fearlessly live as our truest, deepest selves? Soul School is the spiritual education you never received. So if you're ready, join us as we explore together. Soul School is in session. Welcome back to the Soul School. I am here today with Michelle Murphy, a mystic, medium, and a guide. She is somebody that I personally got the opportunity to meet and get to know from the craziest of circumstances, which Michelle, I want to talk about later. But first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited. Yay. So you guys, I'm really excited to have Michelle here because she is just a super talented, exceptional mystic and medium, and she's really profoundly impacted my life. And again, dying to share the story, but we're going to wait because I just want to first start with um, asking you, Michelle, if you could take us back a little bit. I actually don't totally know, so I'm excited to hear it live with everybody. But your story into mysticism, into recognizing you have this wild gift to speak to the other side, spirit guides, mediumship, when did that start for you? And then how did it develop? Um, I think it was always there. I think it was always a part of who I, I am. And the way everybody understands that, you know, their their mind space is truly their own mind space. And we don't know it's different from somebody else's until we get a little bit older. Mm. So I think the question I prefer is, when did I realize other people weren't mediums? You know, <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's true, right? Uh-huh. Um, so very, very early on, I have a lot of really interesting early memories as a child, um, really profound dreams of going into kind of a what I would describe a, 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 a sentient experience without a body. So almost going into a void space, but one that felt very, very open and peaceful. And I was only about six or seven years of age when that started happening. So um, it wasn't scary or anything. It's just I thought everybody kind of felt dizzy before going to sleep and then popped into a different kind of dimensional space. And to this day, I don't really understand what that was. But I do believe part of my work is revisiting that vibration with my clients, even though they don't feel any uh, vibrational difference while they're sitting with me. That's kind of where I'm going when I'm doing my work. Wow. What a cool answer. I'm like taking that all in. So my first question is back to your response then. When did you recognize that other people didn't pop into a void when they fall asleep? Because that's definitely not what I was doing. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, probably realistically around high school. Um I had a few other distractions. I was I was really, really, really a scrawny kid with a learning disability. So, you know, having a few invisible friends, it just looked like uh, it looked like I just had an active imagination. And, um, you know, we just took it as me being me a little unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, but in high school, in high school, when you actually do start having more moments of contemplation and philosophy with your friends, right? You know, yeah. the first time you read Nietzsche, you know, 
or Dostoevsky or Shakespeare or, or T.S. Eliot, you yeah. know, you when you when you uh, dip into the metaphysics, metaphysics, you start feeling um, a certain abstract community. And so it was through literature and poetry that I really started realizing that maybe I was a little bit different. Wait, so what is it about literature and, and poetry? Because I'm tracking you again. I mean, not everybody, let's just start there. Not everybody starts reading that kind of stuff in high school, but I was kind of that kind of kid in high school as well. I wasn't very interested in most topics, but I was obsessed with Plato. And I do think um, philosophical, mystical people seem to glob onto these things young because it, it speaks to them, right? Mm-hmm. But how did that translate into you having that awareness that these imaginary friends you're saying so uh, comically, but in all seriousness, that if that's your normal, when did you realize that it's not necessarily just something people have? And then when did you start to develop it into something that you thought to use to help other people heal? I, I always assumed that's an excellent question. I always assumed in my childhood that I was just um, shy because I would stay away from groups of people and prefer quiet corners alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not that much of an introvert. Um, and it was through the contrast of other children. You know, we're talking grade three, four, five. Um, through the contrast of their social behaviors and and my own somewhat introverted seeming behaviors that I realized I was a little bit different. But again, we don't really realize uh, what's going on because I only have my own mind and I can't really compare it to other people's minds. Um, It was probably realistically in high school also when people started commenting that I had a very interesting way of figuring out what was wrong with them without really knowing or a lot of people would say you know in conversation it's funny you should say that because and it would be this random thing and you know I'd love for listeners to be really really aware of that because often we are I guess angelic messengers to each other without knowing it and serendipity is a wonderful way of tracking that Right. Uh, a lot of people who are deeply empathetic will will find that people say to them, oh, it's funny you should say that because, and it's a very random seeming thing, but it's not random at all. It's actually guided. You know, I think everybody everybody has mysticism within them. Yes. Uh, just not everybody is meant to work in this particular capacity. Yes, yes, yes. So that's, again. So, it was, so to answer your question, it was, it had more to do with my, um, connection to other people in figuring out how they felt and what was what was going on in their in their emotional world uh and being able to what I thought at the time was just actively listen and provide some sort of perspective or solution for them Mm. beautiful it's such I mean first of all I hope everybody can hear already why I'm so super obsessed with you and think that you're such a brilliant talent in the world um, these answers are so profound already. So when did can you I, then can I interrupt you for a moment? Yes. When you said you fell in love with Plato, I was like, I prefer Lego. So I'm not that brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Please. 
there's, there's always a dad joke brewing in the back of my head. <laughs> <laughs> you like the puns. Um, so when did you when did you start to help people then for with with a more conscious awareness? Okay, I I have this mystic ability. I can you, you help people who have lost loved ones, particularly their children. I mean, it's very very serious what you're doing. Um, when did you begin doing that? How many years? What what is that? What did that process start as? Uh, it was officially probably 20 years ago. Um, my hairdresser uh, called it out on me and and invited me over to her place for breakfast where she actually had three people waiting to be read. So she she Beautiful. explained to me that what what I am is a mystic and I have a gift and I need to start helping people. So how old, how old were you? Uh, well, I'm 50, uh, 23, 24. No, no, no. Sorry. 33, 34. Yeah. Yeah. About 33 um, was when I, when, when I was uh, exposed to my own gift. <laughs> Am- amazing. It's like incredible that that can, take that time, right? We get so used to ourselves and, and to have somebody call it out. What, what a beautiful, um, opportunity for you to wake up to what was right in front of you. Right. But not necessarily clear as something you could do to help other people. And were you nervous to go into that first experience? I had no idea I was even going into that first experience. (laughs) She just kind of, kind of like the goddess Kelly, she pushed me over the the edge and said, go swim. (laughs) So So I did. Um, And so then what is your practice? Like, could you share with the audience, you know, if they were to sign up with you, what that looks like, who you're talking to? I know personally a little bit about it. I'll share my own story in a few, but um, you're speaking with different realms and particularly um, playing as a medium between yourself and loved ones. Yeah. So over time, um, I came to realize that my work is predominantly uh, in mediumship. It's connecting to people who've crossed over, um, provided there's a genuine heartfelt connection between the client and the person who has crossed over. It It's a lovely vibrational space, again, that I tend to occupy. I don't see or hear anything, but I get the emotional component of the individual that has crossed over. So I might not um, necessarily understand uh, what they passed of or their name, but I'll get really lovely, very specific and intimate details that only the person I'm speaking with would would know. The number of times people say, nobody knows that. How did you know that? And I, I love those moments. Um, I don't... I don't know how to describe it, but there's a distinction between the guided work and the mediumship. In mediumship, it's really proof of love. I refer to those messages as proof of love, that their bodies may be gone, but their love still resides and remains. And um, I don't want to bother those who've crossed over with things of this earth, you know? Um, I want them to rest in peace. Uh, and as such, I, I just allow them to give those messages of love. The other portion of my work is different. I call it spiritual bitch slapping, where <laughs> the guides and the angels and the guardians are possibly even uh, a part of the individual's subconscious mind that they might not 
be in touch with yet. Uh, it could also be the Akashic realm. I have no idea, but there is something that I'm able to tap into that is pure and wise and loving and non-judgmental and always corrective. Mm. So going to an excellent yoga class where they'll, you know, you think you can touch the floor until they come and they correct your posture. And then the floor is a, you know, an extra foot away from you. That's the type of work that I get to do. Um, it's very loving. It, it, it is not judgmental at all, but it is very, very course correcting. And it's hopefully uh, what allows for my clients to be more centered in the here and now and empowered in a place of peace. And you work more with guides in that process, right? Yes. Whatever it is that comes forward. And I don't even, I don't really know what it is as long as it is loving. And as long as it is, um, Pure is such an abstract word, but that's what I have to say. You know, I'm yeah. I'm prone to headaches. And uh, if I'm standing next to somebody with a, a, a mid-range cologne, it's going to give me a headache. But if I'm standing next to somebody with a really high-end fragrance, I find I don't have the same kind of headache response. Um, I can't explain the mechanisms of my sense of smell and the connection to my brain, but I know the difference between something that is pedestrian and mediocre and something that is decadent and rich. <laughs> the same goes with the yeah. type of information that comes. And I think you as an Akashic reader understands that, that ego has a certain density to it and wisdom has uh, brevity and lightness to it. Oh, that's so beautifully put. I mean, I'm asked constantly to explain, how do I know it's not my ego, Laura? How do I know it's not my ego? How do I know I'm in the Akashic realm? And I'm like, oh, it's like for me trying to explain, how do you know when you're sleeping? How do you know when you're awake? How do you know when you've fallen asleep? How do you know when you're half asleep, partially asleep, midway, in and out of sleep, deep asleep? I'm like, you kind of have to do it. And they all have a bit of a different, to your point, texture or nuance to it. And it's very hard to put words to, very hard. Alone you, you one, the difference between the smell of an orange and the smell of, say, a lime or the smell of a grapefruit, they're all citrus. How do you know the difference? You know, when, <laughs> when we can explain the mechanisms of what's right in front of us, maybe then we can explain the mechanisms of the metaphysical. That's right. So That's right. I don't know. I don't and know. But you know, because you've done it and the more you do it, you know, it's a lemon versus a lime. Absolutely. Same thing with the ego to the Akashic. And so for you, I totally get that. And that's really beautifully put. So you're, you're working with these energies and in that you're able to help people align back to something within themselves to heal, to I'm, I'm dying to share my story, but I'm going to wait again. Go ahead. I came, I came to that portion of the work reluctantly, to be honest, because I, you know, I've found anytime I've had an ego or, or an opinion, uh, rather, anytime I've had an opinion, the opinion ends up turning me into a bit of a, a, a jerk. You know, I'm always proven wrong in my my opinions. It's very humbling. So I, I came to the guided work uh, reluctantly because I really wanted to stay in the lane of mediumship alone. But over the years, I realized that 
when we are in a state of profound chronic grief, we are in transition. And it is through transition and the breaking away of ego that our guides are closest to us. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So I tried to keep the guided stuff at bay and to give that work to the therapists and the coaches, which I have absolutely no background in whatsoever. Um, but it came anyway. And, and so you know, when you I say it's a up, spiritual bitch slap, what does that look like? Like, what is somebody experiencing? Oh, I love that. Uh, I'd have to give an example. And the funny thing is, I rarely recall actual examples. I had a session this morning. And if you asked me to to offer three points from that session, I genuinely could not remember them. I know. I can't remember anything in my readings, maybe 5%, but it's, they're gone. It's like a dream that you come out of. And I see people at dinner parties and they're like, oh my God, it's so great. And I'm like, who are you? Like, it's terrible. I can't remember. Yeah. People crying at the grocery store when they see you and you're like, okay. (laughs) I don't. And they're like, that reading you did was so amazing. And I'm like, what reading? You know, um, it's really bizarre how much it's, disappears. Yeah, it's it's lovely though because it's really not ours to hold. But the spiritual yeah. bitch slapping would be, um, I guess, mm, karmic course correction. So, for instance, if somebody is uh, fixated on a relationship that is already gone and done, um, the spiritual bitch slapping might be connected to the idea that there is a little bit of ego involved in the connection to that individual. Mm. Um, it's it's very difficult to describe though, because sometimes these uh, constant emotional hangovers that we have in relationship is connected to an Akashic situation, possibly a past life situation, but also possibly for instance, people pleasers, people pleasers. I can I can feel the difference between whether that is their current neediness or whether their want to people please is connected to a childhood trauma, which happens when they are when a person is raised with transactional conditional love. And so they learn at a very young age that in order to maintain a secure relationship with an individual, they have to offer unconditional love. Now that's that's a big answer to unpack, and I apologize, but I think no. a lot of people can relate to this, those those relationships where we feel we might, if if we were a little bit better or a little bit more patient or whatever the case may be, that maybe it would work out. And I'd be able to feel whether that is a past life situation, whether it's a trauma related compulsion, or whether the person is actually just a victim of of abuse, of emotional abuse. Yeah. You know, again, the the difference is between the grapefruit, the lemon, and the lime. Yeah. You just you just know the distinction. And that's the spiritual bitch slapping. So it's really not bitch slapping per se. <laughs> but I like swearing. I mean, who doesn't love a good ironic swear word? Well, I love it. I love it. I wanted to clarify because I mean I've worked with you and it's not a bitch slap. It's really loving, loving and wonderful and healing. So okay, let's just um go here. I the way we met. And I want to share the story with everybody because it was so profound and it had such an impact, but not just to share that with everybody, but to open people up to the, um, the realities of what you offer and how that works. And I just hoping it also spawns a little conversation that can help illuminate some of these very um, elusive dis- 
issues yeah. in life. But um, I was having a what I would call a spiritual crisis. I mean, I was at an absolute low. I had been through a difficult month or so with my twin flame. I was just kind of like questioning the entire spiritual path, right? I think we all get to these moments where it's like, is this helping my life or actually hindering? Like, is believing in this stuff starting to have a, a negative outcome for me? And I really was at a sort of low, a faith low. And lo and behold, I had a client that day as I was having like an eat, pray, love freak out, to be honest. And I'm somebody who never freaks out. And I come to the call and I'm thinking this poor client, I'm a mess. I'm not going to be able to do a good reading. And I'm doing this reading for you. You were that client. <laughs> and um, and I'm just moving through it. And you're like, do you know that there's a spirit with you? And I'm like, oh my God, universe. I just said, I'm done. I was going to do you as a client. And I was like, maybe I'll wrap it up and I'll be done with this entire world. And so you were very persistent uh, in letting me know that my grandmother, who is the one spiritual relationship I feel close to, was with me. And that you wanted to bring a message forward because you're just this really loving, um, generous person. And we have a mutual friend in common. But I was not in the mood, to be honest. And I was like, I told you I'm letting the spiritual stuff go. So I was I was trying to be nice with you. You were a client and I was just trying to move on. Anyways, fast forward, we met up. Um, you brought my grandmother forward who had a message for my twin flame that my grandmother would like to speak with her. And we were currently not speaking. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? So I'm not speaking to my twin flame. I'm in a spiritual crisis. And my grandmother would like to tell me that she would like to speak to the person on the 3D realm that I'm not talking to. That's really normal. So I reached out to my twin flame and they hooked up. Um, well, you, you two connected and my grandmother did not show up. A bunch of other very large energies showed up in her place with very distinctive messages for my twin flame, starting with quoting the tattoo that she has on her back that you would obviously not know. Um, and from there, there was this relationship that we started where um, you were helping with her journey. And then you did this clearing for me where we met and you felt that I had sort of merged my energies with her. And you were like, oh my God, there's like no separation in your energetic field. And you started to, to remove this energy. So I guess what I'm fascinated by, Michelle, is I go into the Akasha, right? Like I go to the space that holds our thoughts, feelings, and action over all of our lifetimes. This experience was so, it's like kissing cousins, right? Mm similar, but like distinctly different in that you were calling on different guides, but you were really working with my energy. Mm -hmm. I know you can't describe it, but I'm going to nonetheless ask you to describe it. What, what do you think that is when you're um, able to, I mean, I felt 1000% better the next day. Like it was remarkable. Oh I know we're just trying to put words to, to abstraction, but how, how do you describe all that in your words? Key lime pie. <laughs> uh, it's very, I, 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 I'd like to call it, 
it's definitely couture work. It's not something that you can do in a large group, I don't think. Uh, what I do, if I can break it down and Please. let me know if I, I'm losing you here. No. So when a person sits in front of me in a space of wanting to be helped, not by me, but by their guides or by whatever they believe in, uh, I immediately enter a space of divine love. And so when I'm working with a person, I love them. I love them the way their deceased granny loved them. I love them the way the yogis say the divine light in me acknowledges the divine light in you. And when I am in that space and you are in that space, we are one. I feel that. And for the first little while of my work, I was actually quite crestfallen when people would leave because I felt like I had to grieve them because I get to see them in their perfect form. And so I enter your psyche from the space of divine love. And if I can have a, a postscript before I continue, divine love is not unconditional love. Unconditional love actually does have an element of ego, a timeline, a fear of loss. But divine love is fearless. And if you're ever lucky enough to be in the company of this woman, her name is Amma, and she's known as the hugging Hindu saint. Um, you, you know, you wait in line for about eight hours for a three second hug. And that those three seconds change everything because in those three sec seconds, you actually feel fearless love. And it's not something you can describe. It's something that you can experience. I think in many ways, we glimpse it in grief because when we've already lost everything in grief, there is nothing more to fear. And so we love our deceased loved ones so much more profoundly than we can humanly imagine. Mm. It's a terrible paradox, but it's true. Anyhow, so I enter the space of divine love with my client. Wait, I have to pause. Because yes. you explained this to me a year ago and it blew my mind. You did it in session, but I just want to pause for the listeners. It's really important to hear what you said because you went so quickly. Unconditional love comes with loss, meaning mm -hmm. I can unconditionally love my son, right? Like if you have kids or you have a family member or a friend or a sibling, whatever it is that you feel like, God, if this person needed something, I'm there. I yeah. love them unconditionally. But you said this and I was like, oh my God, if they die, I would lose my mind, right? Yeah. So it comes with this massive fear of loss, right? And like- 100%, absolutely. Yeah. Or and if you were talking I about failed them, or if somebody hurts them, you know, the more we love, sometimes the more we fear. Yes. It's part of our, you know, parenting, especially loving, whether, whether it's my gosh, the way I love my dog, you know, the number of times, all you have to do is get the dog off leash for a minute and pray to heaven that it doesn't get hit by a car or something, because that is that fear. It's visceral. It's extreme. Yes. You know? So, yes. and so divine love is moving past that fear. It's fearless. That's wild to think about. So I just wanted to pin that because it's, we use the word divine love and we use the word unconditional versus conditional love. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last five years and moving my way through, as you know, that, that conditional to unconditional is a big enough leap, but unconditional to divine is truly remarkable to think about.
Well, I mean, songs are made about this all the time, but not the ones on the radio. They're, they're, um, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you, you know, that these, these, these hymns. And of course I have to identify as an Irish Catholic raised as an Irish Catholic. Um, I'm also ex very much aware of white supremacy and toxic masculinity and misogyny and all of those things. So I'm, you know, take that as you, as you may, but uh, my upbringing is informed by um, Judeo-Christian symbolism but I'm, I'm fairly certain that every religion has some sort of connection to grace and divine love in some yeah. way or another. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I appreciate that. Where and I just we? wanted to pause. So where were we? I forgot where we were. <laughs> um, yeah. So we were talking about um, that you drop into that place of seeing them from the divine. Yes. Thank you. And so where the, where the work happens is when I, I get to I get to see them as their absolute perfect potential. And then I can see where or I can feel where there is density. And it's almost like an emotional pull I feel towards certain things. So it's like a lint brush just kind of picking up lint off the person's psyche. It's hard to describe. Um I'm told by clients it's also hard to recall the experience they just leave feeling lighter they leave feeling like they've had a glimpse of the big picture mm -hmm. and once once we have proof that there's something bigger than this human experience everything changes you know um the the great love of my life is leonard cohen light of heaven to him may his memory be a, me a blessing he said we are so lightly here it is in love that we are made and in love we disappear which and is I by the way the quote on my twin flames back right <laughs> the, uh, the, that was what was so interesting was you started there yeah yeah so uh but that's that's an absolute truth to me that we are lightly here in love we are made in love we disappear and while we're in this dense body of ours we are we are struggling to remember that love. And so I guess I feel the distinction between the divine love that is all of us and all of our source and all of our breath and the actual human. So it's the potential versus the actual that I can feel the difference. And I get to thread that together with, I, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a, massive amount of this that's not describable. But when I teach my classes, I think, well, for sure, every class I get asked this, but I think it might be the single most common question is just like, what's the difference between the Akashic and the guides? And the, the, and I'm always like, you know, it's tough. And so I thought maybe I'd force you to take a stab at it. <laughs> well, and, and actually that's a, that's an excellent question too, because if I were to say, you know, what I, what I just described was like, I am doing this and I am doing that, but I'm not, what I'm doing is I'm feeling the feeling. And then a saint, an angel, uh, an ascended master, I don't know what, whatever is required seems to come forward. And um, the reluctance I have in speaking so abstractly, it's, it's huge. It's kind of funny. I like being very, very specific in my messaging. Otherwise, we're just kind of taking stabs in the dark. Um, 
So I tell people, for instance, if, um, let's say, who would it be? Let's, let's use a Archangel Raphael. I'll, I, let's say I feel that Archangel Raphael is interceding in some capacity. Um, I will suggest that the client be mindful of not look for things, but be mindful of maybe the name Raphael or Ralph will present itself over the next few days. And it's not the most common name, but usually that will happen. And I'll get the text saying, I met three Ralphs in the last week. What is going on? Right. And, and the angels have a funny, funny way of, of doing that. And by meeting the three Ralphs, it might not be actually becoming acquainted with them, but they might go to a restaurant and their server's name is Ralph and they see it on the receipt. So funny little moments like that are, are kind of affirmations that we are indeed not alone and that there's something so much bigger than what we really can understand helping us all the time. Right, right. And then I think part two of that journey, once you um, have enough serendipity, whatever you want to call it, Ralph, 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 that you start to open yourself up to the idea that we're not alone, there's something else. Then it's very important, in my opinion, and you and I have spoken on it a little, but to not create a new story about what Ralph, Ralph, Ralph exactly means, because we don't know, right? Like what's your take on when people start to get omens, serendipity, and then think, what do I do with that exactly, right? I think we're getting dangerously close to dogma at that point. Yeah. Um, You know, dogma is very man-made. It's when we take um, a fluid expressive system and we decide to contain it and make it stagnant and put rules on it and have hierarchy around it. You know, no man steps into the same river twice. Um, No person steps into the same river twice. And so the river's in flux and the person's in flux. And when when we try to hold on to one interpretation of a thing, it, it stops being beautiful and heartwarming and heart opening and it it becomes rigid does that does that answer the question absolutely it's it's subtle and but truth right like i think my mind wants to organize around mm-hmm. what it thinks the spiritual serendipity omens those moments should mean but going back to what you've been saying, there is no real understanding. So then you have to move back to the fluidity and just allow it to be happening for whatever reasons it is until it becomes clear what and why things are happening. And and even then you just keep flowing with it, right? There's, there's a oddity to life in that way that, you know, you have to take action, but you can never really confidently understand why you're taking the actions you're taking in all moments. I like the idea as a compliment to that of uh, what people are now referring to as metacognition, being mindful of the way your brain thinks, you know, and uh, deconstructing where your thoughts come from. 
So while we are in a guided state and trusting that things are happening on, in, in an inexplicable way, but we are feeling more grounded and more whole and more um, alive in ourselves outside of ego, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to get busy paying attention to the way our brain actually thinks and perceives reality. Um, And my big thing in my work is as wonderful as it is to sit around in a kumbaya circle, drinking Kool-Aid together, I think it's even more important that we be kind and generous with each other. Mm. You know, the whole point of being an empath, if I feel your pain and I have taken on a life of articulating other people's pain and sometimes eating their pain, and then I go to therapy and then I do, you know, I do my thing. Sometimes it gets on your hands, you know, other people's pain gets on your hands, um, which is fine. I signed up for that as work. it's not an excuse to live a cloistered life outside of society, making, making your state as an empath, uh, a precious thing. I think we have to be grounded and resilient and generous in our ability to connect to other human beings. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm into that. Well, Michelle, If people are looking to experience this journey with you and they would like to find you, um, connect with you, do you have like a website where, where can they find more of you? Uh, I have a website. It's michellemurphy.ca. Nice. Because I'm Canadian. Canadian. Um, Yeah. (laughs) michellemurphy.ca and everything's there. Uh, So that's me. Thank you. Well, I just want to. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I have a tiny little um, Instagram account as well, where I put my word doodles and my word doodles are these, these words that get dropped into my head. And then within two days, the client shows up that they belong to. Oh, I love that. I so love wild. that. <laughs> well, Michelle, I just want to say, you know, I deeply appreciate you, the work you've done. It has been transformational to say the least in my life. And for anybody out there that's listening, who's looking to experience um, a connection with a loved one, perhaps is going through a difficult time or is just very open to guidance in a different way than the Akashic realm. Um, I would definitely say, you know, run, don't walk, but uh, mm-hmm. that's my opinion, you know, each to their own and whatever you feel connected to. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and wisdom today. And thank you. And thank you for the courage of your craft. Oh, thank you. Beautiful work. So as as they say at the end of every yoga class, no mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. No mistakes. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. And I really hope that you consider checking out the Little Soul School, littlesoul.school, where there's a community of people dedicated to soul growth, soul learning, and the Akashic energy a space that holds all of our soul's histories, everything we've ever done in all of our lifetimes. Because they're looking for a deeper connection to themselves, a place to experiment and play with spirituality in a non-judgmental, vulnerable, open community of people 
No woo-woo, no fluff, just fun and connection. Come check it out, littlesoul.school.